We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this morning we're looking at a tough passage. It's a passage on ecclesiology. You go, whoa, what's ecclesiology? Let me tell you what ecclesiology is. Ecclesiology, uh, before we get at the, the ology, at the end of the word ecclesiology, means the study of, in the original language, the study of. And so if you have theology, theo is God, what's that's the study of? Theology is the study of God. It's, it's ology and theo, it's the study of God. Now, ecclesiology is, the word ecclesia is the church. It literally means the assembly. It means the called out ones. It means Christians that are assembled together to be God's church. And so ecclesia is church, ology is study. What's ecclesiology? It's a study of the church. And so what we're going to look at today is some principles on what we're supposed to be about as a church. We're looking at principles of ecclesiology this morning, the study of the church. Why is that important? Because the church is important to Jesus Christ. Do you know what, you, do you know what uh, Jesus liked to refer to his church in his word? He calls his church the bride, his bride, and he's the groom. I've done about 100 plus weddings. I've officiated, I know I'm getting old, but I've officiated over 100 weddings as a pastor last 31 years of ministry. I love weddings. I love weddings because one of the favorite parts of my weddings is, is, is when I officiate is I get to stand up there in the center with the groom. And I get to watch the groom when that bride walks through the door and everybody stands up. Here comes the bride. And I get to see the look of love on that groom's face, and glee, oh, just the sparkle in his eyes. And I always do that. I watch the bride, but I watch the groom, too. I remember when my, my oldest son, the first wedding in the Hoppy family, my oldest son, John G., got married. We were up at Grace Church up in Greenville, where he lives. And uh, it was an interesting church, a downtown church, and there's no center aisle. And so uh, there's two side aisles, but there's no center aisle. So I told John G., as we're standing up there waiting for his bride to come through the door, I said, okay, John G., listen, just stay cool, stay up here with Pops, just stay here, and we'll let her walk down the aisle, and then, and, you know, everybody's standing, you let her walk, and then, then she'll come right to you. Just, well, proper protocol, just stay up here with me. And as soon as that door opened, he didn't hear anything I said. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a very obedient kid, but he wasn't obedient to me at all there. He said, Dad, I don't care what you said, I'm going to go see my bride. And he actually, he actually ditched me up center and just ran to the side like this. And he, he, he saw his bride come down that aisle. And his light face just, I watched him, his face just lit up. And he's going, oh, that's my bride. That's my bride. Love. How's a church in Jesus' eyes? He loves his church. That's his bride. We're his bride. You know what that means? He's passionately in love, not only with us individually, but us corporately as a church. He loves his church. And the question is, if he loves his church, if we're followers of Christ, how should we feel towards the church? We should love the church. We should have a passion for church. We should want to be a part of church. We should be a serving in church, because this is his bride, and we should love it like he loves it. And not only that, he calls not only his church his bride, listen to this, he calls his church his body. And what that tells us ecclesiology-wise about the church is we are his physical representation of him, of Christ, his body here on earth. And if, we, if, 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 if Jesus is going to be represented here, the main vehicle that represents Jesus Christ on earth is the body of Christ, which is the church of Jesus Christ. 
And if you want to represent Christ, you want to be an ambassador for Christ, which we're all called to be, you got to not only love the church, you got to be in church and be a part of the church because this is the main vehicle he wants to use to, to reach his world, the church. I believe this. The church is the hope of the world. It's the vehicle God wants to use to be his hands and his feet in the world. And I don't know about you, but I love church. As a kid growing up in a dead church, I didn't like it at all. But a pastor now in an alive church, which we are here at Calvary Chapel, I love our church. I love the church of Jesus Christ. And I will, I have always, ever since I got saved, I've always been involved in a church, always been serving in a church, and I always will and I always be until Jesus takes me home. Because this is his body, this is the hands and feet, the representation of Christ here on earth, the church of Jesus Christ. So you ready to learn some things about how we should do church this morning, what's important in the church, ecclesiology this morning? Amen? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at it. Let's see some principles on church this morning from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a tough chapter, but we'll we'll, we'll get through it, and I'll, I'll explain as we go through it. We need to interpret this. We need to do some exegesis where we interpret the Scripture to get all Paul's saying here. First thing he says in verse 1, be imitators of me just as I'm also of Christ. Now, proof in the context of this scripture, we need to understand that Paul just explained to him in the last verse of chapter 10, he said, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they might be saved. So Paul's saying, hey, just as I live for the profit of others and to please others and to live not for myself but for others, you live that way too. And then two verses before that, he said in chapter 10, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so what Paul's saying is, just as I live for the profit of others, not my own profit, you Corinthians do that too. And just as I live for the glory of God, whatever I do and eat or drink, we're going to do it for the glory of God, so you imitate me in that way also. And here's the first principle about about church. The church should be a, a place where people are following Christ, imitating Christ, going after the example of Christ, and then saying, hey, follow me as I what? As I follow Christ. The word there, uh, uh, imitate, in the Greek it's mimica. And it means literally, it means to mimic. And our jobs as disciples of Jesus Christ is to study the life of Christ here in this book, to learn from his example, and then walk in his steps. And the more you get to know Christ and the more you get to know his word, the more you learn of him. And just as he loves, you love. Just as he's holy, you be holy. Now, does it mean you need to be perfect? No, but it means you need to be following example. And you need to be mimicking him as you learn of him in the scriptures. And then the church of Jesus Christ, as people that are following hard after Christ, imitating Christ, walking in his steps, and then telling other people, hey, hey, you, just as I'm following Christ, you follow me now as I follow Christ. You, as I'm imitating Christ, you imitate Christ along with me. And come on, let's go. And isn't that discipleship? Jesus said the church's great commission is to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and then, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's our job as a church, to learn of Christ, follow his example, imitate him, mimic him, and then tell other people, hey, 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 you follow me as I follow Christ. Now, the guy that led me to Christ, talk about him often, love the guy, 
I just was on Facebook with him this week. He's in Phoenix, Arizona, and I said to Heidi Bates and stuff he's doing right now, that guy's still a man, a man that I just follow. Love the guy. He had a picture of himself. He was an All-American gymnast in high school, captain of Arizona State uh, gymnastics team, and he had a picture of himself on Facebook just recently. He's 57 years old. He visited our home city of Chicago, where we're both from, and he's got a picture of himself uh, doing a handstand in front of the Picasso statue in Chicago. And I go, he's still got it. But the thing that impressed me about Bruce is he led me to Christ, and I became a Christian, and I started hanging out with him, is he was a follower of Jesus Christ. All he wanted to do is live for Christ. Is a teenager. And I remember being in line at Lake Theater in Oak Park, Illinois, where we were both from, and just going to a movie with Bruce. And as we're waiting in line for this movie, and I'm just a brand new Christian, and Bruce, is, he starts talking to people behind us who never met him before, and then he starts witnessing and trying to lead them to Christ in the movie line. I'm going, Bruce, what are you, crazy? But then as I saw that, I saw he'd be leading people to Christ all the time and doing evangelism all the time. I said, that's, that's what I want to do too. I want to be a witness like Bruce is a witness. I'm going to follow his example and do evangelism like he's doing evangelism because that's, that's what a follower of Christ is supposed to be doing. I'm following him as he follows Christ. And then I got to know him some more and I went on some trips with him and stuff and he'd always disappear early in the morning. I go, where's Bruce? Man, we're supposed to be sleeping in. He's gone. And I'd go outside and I'd look for him and he'd be out sitting on the ground or on a bench or something with his Bible open, reading the word, having a quiet time. And I'd go, wow. That's interesting. Woke up a little early just so he'd get in his word and pray. So you know what I did? I said, That's, I'm going to follow him as he follows Christ. I'm going to start getting up in the morning and praying and reading my word. And I learned as I did that I was growing spiritually because of that. Amazing. And it was interesting. We, we, we started dating the two sisters, uh, Jane Taylor, he was dating, and then the, her, her, his sister was just a year younger. And I started dating her. We used to go on, I'm sorry, Heidi, bring this up. But... Uh, we used, to, we used to go on double dates together with these two sisters. I got to know Bruce, and we had a great time and, and everything, but I remember talking to Bruce about dating and stuff, and he was the only teenager that I talked to about this, but he, he talked about even in his relationship with his girlfriend, he was going to be holy. He was, wasn't going to be immoral like everybody else. He had standards of purity in his relationship with his girlfriend as a teenager. So that's, that's godly. I'm going to follow him as he follows Christ, follow that example. You see how discipleship works? You know what the church is for? It's a bunch of people that are following hard after Christ and then telling other people, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. You see that? That's the first thing on ecclesiology. A church is supposed to be disciples that are following Christ to the point they could say with integrity and honesty, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm gonna live for Christ all my heart. Now come on, you live for Christ and follow my example. That's how we're supposed to be living. That's why we need to be a holy as a church, too, because we can't tell people to follow us unless we're following hard after Christ ourselves. Amen? And then it goes on. <laughs> Gets interesting now. Now, I praise you because, verse 2, you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. And ladies, you're saying, okay, what are you going to do with that one, Pastor John? I'm going to say this. The Bible's very clear that in, the, in, the, in all things, there's an order, there's a structure, there's a line of authority. 
And what, what we see throughout the scriptures within the family, what, what God wants within the family is every organization needs a leader. If you don't have leadership in an organization, you have anarchy, you have chaos. And the way God's established it within his family is there's an order of authority. Now, does, is, is that inequality between a husband and wife? No. No, no, no. There's an example there. The father and the son, they're equal. They're, a part, they're both God. They're bar, both a part of the Trinity. But there's even an order within the Trinity. The order within the Trinity is that the son looks to the father for leadership. And he says, Father, not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. And Father, I'm about your business. And so now he's saying, just as the, the son looks to the father, so the son now is the head of man. The, the Christ is supposed to be the leader for us as men. And then within the family structure, the husband's supposed to be the leader within the, the, the relationship with the wife. Now, guys, don't use this scripture as ammunition. Pastor John says, I'm supposed to be your head. You listen to me, woman. That ain't gonna work real well for you guys. And by the way, what kind of head was Christ? Was he a dictatorial, tyrannical leader? Was he forcing his leadership on his own disciples? Say, you gotta listen to me, guys. No, he didn't. He got down on his knees before he's gonna die for them. And what did he do? He washed their feet. And then he said, hey, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. And husbands, you want your wives to follow your leadership? Listen, serve them. Serve them well. Be a servant leader, not a dictatorial, tyrannical leader that's forcing your leadership on your wife. That doesn't work real well. I've been married 31 years. I know it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But when I serve Heidi well, it's easier for her to follow my leadership. And ladies, let, let me put on the other, other side of the coin in this though too. Ladies, your husband's greatest need according to scripture is respect. Your greatest need as a wife is love. And that's why husbands, you're called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. But wives, you can meet your husband's greatest need by allowing him to lead and be the leader, spiritual leader in your home. And your husbands, let me tell you something, your husbands oftentimes are out in the world getting beat up, having bosses pushing them around, and having tough time battles during the week and stuff, and one of the greatest things you do for your husband when he comes home is to show respect towards him. There's a reason why Rodney Dangerfield made a whole career out of saying as a husband, I get no respect. Some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. He's a comedian, and his whole deal was, I get no respect, I get no respect. It's, and the way, reason why that rang a bell is because that's how a lot of men feel. And when you come home as a man and you have a wife that respects you, that goes a long ways, and it blesses the marriage, and it keeps order within a culture that is disordered and rebellious and has all kinds of problems. There's peace there when there's this clear line of authority and structure within the family. Amen. <laughs> Let me keep going before I get in any more trouble. Verse four, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesies disgraces her head, for she is one and the same uh, with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for her woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, what in the world is that all about? 
All you ladies, you're, don't have your heads covered. What's the matter with you? Let me tell you what this is about. And this is one of those instances in Scripture you need to interpret. You need to go back to the culture and understand the culture. The culture at that time, and similar in several Mideast cultures still today in this area of the world, still have this thought. And that is, if the women don't have their heads covered in, in our cultures today, in the Mideast and some of the Muslim countries, if they don't have their face covered, they're being immodest, and they're telling the other people, the other men in that culture, I'm available. The prostitutes in Corinth would wield their trade and raise funds for the pagan temples at nighttime, and they'd all be out in the streets without their head covered, without the covering that showed that they were, and what they were saying, those prostitutes were saying, I'm available. I'm available. And so what Paul is saying here is, ladies, when you go out in public, and when you go to church, by all means, don't be immodest. Don't, don't be in the cultural situation where you're saying, I'm available to other men, which they were saying if they didn't have their head covers in that culture. So how does that apply to us? Ladies, let me tell you something. Please, please. One of the other things you do for your marriage besides respecting your husband is don't dress in a way that's immodest and you're telling other men out there, hey, look at me. Also, don't flirt don't flirt in such a way that you're telling other men, I'm available. Be a one-man woman if you're married. And guys, let me tell you something. Same thing. Same thing. First Timothy chapter 3 says one of the requirements for leadership within the church is to be a husband of one wife. Literally translated in the Greek, that's a one-woman man where you only have your eyes and your focus and your flirtation to your wife and not other women. It's very important. That, brings, that keeps, again, the order within your family, too. <laughs> it's probably a couple years back, a little while ago. Heidi came home, and she was kind of flustered, and I said, what's going on? She goes, well, I'm driving down 378 or whatever, and I'm driving down, and I stopped at a stoplight or whatever, and this, this guy started looking through the window at me, started giving me eyes and trying to be flirtatious through the window at the stoplight. Steam's already coming out of my ears. And then I said, well, what'd you do? She said, well, I, what I did, and Heidi's always been so faithful in this area of, of being a one-man woman. She said, I, 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 I put up my wedding ring finger, and I said this to the guy through the window, like this. <laughs> it wasn't the other finger. It was her wedding ring, okay? And she puts her wedding ring up like this, and she goes, she goes like this. And you know what the guy did? He puts up his wedding ring and goes like this. Uh, and I, I, I didn't say this to her, but I followed my spirit. Did he get his license number? <laughs> we got police in our church. I'll find out who he is, and I'll go do a pastoral visit with him. <laughs> but that's our culture, isn't it? I'm married, no big deal. Let's do this. And that's not God's church. God's church, it says, we're going to be one woman, man, one, one man, woman, and one woman, man. Amen. And that's why the head covering was an issue. Because in that culture, you're saying, I'm available, I'm modest, flirtatious. Don't go there. Verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, what's that about? Well, as men, we're created in God's image. And one of the things, as we lead our wives spiritually, our wives become a reflection of our leadership in that home. 
That, that word when it says the woman is the glory of man, the word glory there is the outshining or the reflection. And one of their, our jobs as men is to lead, lead our homes well enough that our ladies, our wives, are the outshining and are growing spiritually because of our leadership. And they're walking with God because of our leadership in this area. Verse 8, for a man does not originate from a woman, but a woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, the one time God looked at his creation and said it's not good, it's when he saw Adam alone. And he said it's not good for man to be alone. So he created Eve, created woman. Woman means out of man. And remember, he took out of the side of Adam, Eve. He created Eve. And then he said, and Eve is supposed to be the helpmate to Adam. Now, helpmate, interesting word in Hebrew. It means this. It means, it means the completer of man. And that's what marriage does. I haven't noticed this or not, but I've noticed it many times. Oftentimes, God will put you in a marriage with somebody that your, your opposites attract, you're very different from one another. You know why? Because if you're all the same, you wouldn't be meeting each other's needs in regards to filling gaps. And I've seen that. And I've seen that in my marriage. Heidi is so different than me, and she reminds me all the time, I am so different than her. And I'm one of these visionary guys that has big picture things and not very good with details. I'll be looking around the house for 20 minutes for my glasses, and I cannot find those things. i got to read something. I can't read. I can't find my glasses. And after 20 minutes, I finally give up and say, sweetheart, have you seen my glasses? Yeah, they're right on your bedstand right next to your bed. They're right there. I go, why didn't I ask her 20 minutes ago? Because she's a detail person. She knows not only where her stuff's at, she knows where my stuff's at. We're a completer of one another in our marriages. And that's all it's saying there, is that woman comes out of man and then completes man. Verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's that head covering under the authority of her husband. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has birth through the, through the woman. And all things originate from God. You know what Paul's doing there? He's saying, yeah, guys, women came out of the man, the side of Adam. But guys, none of you would be here if it wasn't for a woman. And so there's, there's, there's an equality there too. We, we come out of, if you're a human being, a man, you came out of a woman at one time. You originate from women, and that's, again, giving just the credit to women, bringing men into the world. Verse 13, judge for yourself. Is it proper, proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. Now, interesting verse, verse 14. Long hair for men? It says long hair for men there, going back to the verse, is a dishonor to him. Now, when our churches of Calvary Chapel was born, first church, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, we had a revival. 900 young people were getting baptized and saved every month for three years. Wonderful. It's nationwide news. We had, the, we had the cover of Life magazine one time was a baptism for Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. But the, a lot of the guys at that time were hippies. And they had long hair. 
And so Pastor Chuck would go to other parts of the country, especially in conservative parts of the country, and, and he'd be there for conferences or radio rallies or whatever. And one of the first questions, oftentimes late 60s, early 70s, Pastor Chuck would get is, is, why are you allowing all these guys in your church to have hair down on their hips when the Bible says that's a dishonor? It's wrong for men to have long hair. You know, Pastor Chuck, what standard answer? You'd say, it doesn't say in that verse that, that God is saying it's a dishonor. He's saying in that verse, nature says it's a dishonor. And what, what Pastor Chuck was saying is most men, they grow their hair long, it ain't real pretty. It's like shaggy, kind of rough looking, or like this, what in the world? It's women, the op- opposite, it says a glory. Nature teaches it's a glory. For often not women will have beautiful long hair. But guys, have you noticed that? Well, guys with long hair, it's, it's nature itself shows. And, and he would say this, it's just nature saying that most guys who grow long hair, it's a dishonor to them. And he says, when I look out my congregation right now, and they got all these hippies, and they got long hair, I'll look at them, and just in my spirit, Pastor Chuck would say, I just, oh, all these guys with long hair, what a shame. What a shame. What a shame. But then he says, real honestly, he said, but then I go home, and next morning I wake up and I look in the mirror, and he was bald like me, and he, looked, he said, I look in the mirror and I go, oh, what a shame. What a shame. I don't got any hair. What a shame. What's nature teaching me? It's just keeping me humble. What a shame. That's all the point is right there. And I think it's true. We don't want to lay a trip on people for having long hair if they're a guy or whatever else. Now, most guys, it's a dishonor because it's, unless you're Brad Pitt or something, it's not going to look real good. You know what's that about Brad Pitt? Even his hair looks good when it's long. He's a pretty boy or something. But anyways, <laughs> anyways, nature's making a point there is what it's saying. Now, what does this have to do with ecclesiology? All this stuff, head coverings, all this other stuff. Here's what it has to do with ecclesiology. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where you learn to respect authority and order, not only within the church, but within your families within your marriages, within the, the authority structure that God has put for even man and woman as they become married. And one of the things that the, ch- the church teaches, like the Ten Commandments, teaches our kids, honor, honor your father and your mother so that your life might be long and it might go well with you. And that's a part of our discipleship in the church is to teach honor for the governing authorities that God puts in place. And then we teach them honor because there's respect and love in our marriages where the rest of the world have marriages that are just chaos and anarchy. But because we've taught husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, there's an order and there's authority, there's a structure there that our kids are learning and they're growing up with and they'll be blessed because they grew up in church and they learn that and they learn the importance of what Paul said in Romans chapter 13, 1 when he said, let every person be in subjection to the governing of authorities for there's no authority except uh, uh, from God and those which exist are established or ordained by God. You know, all my kids are growing up on me. My baby, Daniel, is getting married this summer. But I look at their lives right now, and they all grew up in church. They all grew up at Calvary Chapel. They all grew up with a great children's ministry. They all grew up with great youth ministry. They all grew up, grew up with some great examples here in our church, here in Calvary Chapel. And so they've learned from preschool on to respect authority, to honor authority. And they brought that into school with them. They respected the authority of their teachers. Now they're all working and they're getting jobs, and they're respecting the authority of their bosses. 
You know what I'm seeing? They're getting blessed. They're getting blessed over and over again in the lives because they're going with the structure they've learned in church that authorities are placed by God and respect authority and your life will go well and you'll have a good life, a long life oftentimes. That's what the church is for. And ultimately the church is for us to not only teach the next generation and teach ourselves to honor the authority structures within the family and out in the world that God's put in place, but ultimately to honor the authority of, of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the church is to teach us that Jesus is Lord, and as we honor his authority and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all things will be added unto us. Amen? And that's what the church is for. And as we get obedient, we get blessed because we learn that authority structure, and then we honor the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and then respect the authorities that he established and ordains. So the church is for. That's the second point of ecclesiology. The church is to be a place where you're taught respect for order and authority in the structures that God has put in place. Now let's go on, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together for, not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place where you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One's hungry, another's drunk. Gosh, can you imagine that? Drunk before communion. What? Exclamation mark, verse 22. Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Here's what's going on. They had in that culture, in the New Testament church, agape feasts. We call them here in the south covered dishes. Up north where I'm from, we call them potlucks, right? And what they did on a regular basis as a church is they'd have covered dishes, potlucks. They actually did on, a, on some, in the New Testament church in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, they did it daily. They broke bread from home to home daily and had communion in their breaking of bread every day. But I think it probably evolved, kind of like us. We do it once a month here on Sunday mornings. But they actually, probably at least on a weekly basis, would get together for the agape feast, and they'd have this covered dish, and they'd have a large group of people. They'd all bring food, and they'd have a great time of fellowship. And then at the end of the time, they'd have communion. And then Corinth, what was going on, is there was probably a richer class of people that were bringing some really good food. They'd push to the front of the line. They'd eat the majority of the food, and then the poorer people in the back of the line by the time they got up there, the food is pretty much gone. And Paul said, that's wrong. And interesting, in the New Testament church, a lot of the members at times were slaves. There was 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And slaves, the one place they could find refuge and love and even respect at times was the church of Jesus Christ. And so the slaves would get to the end of the line and they'd go up and the food is gone. But not only that, Paul says, someone were getting drunk they're getting pickled before having communion. And Paul says, exclamation mark, what? He probably was saying his spirit as a good Jewish background guy, oi, vey, what's the matter with you people? You're getting drunk, you're being selfish with your food, and then you're getting drunk before communion? And so Paul addresses, what is communion really supposed to be about? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for what? You. 
do this in remembrance of me. He said, let's get back to the core of what communion's about. It's a sacrament. It's holy. It's a remembrance of Jesus' body nailed to a cross to pay for your sins. You're getting drunk before that? And not only that, it's an opportunity for us as believers to go back. Go back to the cross. And remember the incredible love that Jesus did in going to the cross and saying, it is finished, paid in full. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, paying for our sins. Holy time, communion. And then he says, in the same way, verse 25, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Interesting. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But notice, let a man, what? Examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, communion, why is it important? Three reasons. It's going back, looking back, and remembering that Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for us as friends. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we got sinners. Christ died for us. We go back and remember that at communion. That's a holy time to remember the incredible love that Jesus proved on the cross in dying for us. But also, listen, it's a time of, it's a time of looking forward. Look back, but look forward. He says, it, it, it's a time to remember that when he comes, when he comes again in the future, we're going to have communion with him. When he establishes his kingdom here on earth, Revelation says there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be awesome. Millions of believers are going to be gathered around Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to have the greatest worship service ever in the history of mankind. And he's going to, he's going to celebrate communion with us. He said, I won't drink of this wine again until I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when we're celebrating communion, we're looking not only back, we're looking forward. We're saying, we're going to celebrate this anew in the Father's kingdom with Jesus Christ. But also communion is a time to examine ourselves. Look back, look forward, and look within, saying, God, is there anything in my life that I need to get right with you and repent of? And that's why communion is important. It gets you right with God. It's wonderful. I tell you what, we have a men's conference here every October. We have six, 700 men. My favorite part of the men's conference every year is the last session. Because in the last session, after we've been convicted, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness all weekend long. We do business with God on both sides of the sanctuary at communion. And there's tears flowing, the spirits moving, and there's repentance happening. And that's what communion is for too, is do business with God, amen? Where you get things right. And that's why, that's why I tell every, at the men's conference every year, I tell our guys, don't leave before the last session. Because there's a temptation to go home and get the college football going or get home in time for church and get things settled because the guys travel for hours to come to the conference. But I always say, stay for the last session because the most important thing in this conference is communion after the last session. Communion is important. And that's a third point on church. Church is a place where you practice the holy sacrament of communion. 
And interesting, Acts 2.42, it says the New Testament church devoted themselves to four pillars. Of the four pillars, you know, it was prayer, it was fellowship, it was, it was uh, the apostles' teaching. But f- the f- one of the four pillars was the breaking of bread, which is communion. It's one of the four th- things we're to be committing ourselves, continually devoting ourselves to as a fellowship, as in a church. It's one of our four priorities as a church. Make sure you're in church, but make sure communion is a holy time between you and the Lord. Now let's close up our scripture. It says this, verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now when it says sleep, that's a euphemism in the New Testament for died. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that some of you, because you've come to the communion table drunk, are coming under the discipline of the Lord. You're weak, you're sick. Some of you have even died. 1 John chapter 5 tells us there is a sin that leads to death. And what that's talking about in 1 John 5 is sometimes Christians, believers, will get so outside of God's will and so disobedient that God will take that believer out, get him to heaven because of their bad witness. That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the book of Acts? They're lying to the apostles, and God, God took them both out because there is a sin that leads to death. That's the judgment, the discipline of God right there. And that says in verse 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let me eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Here's the last point of church. We'll close with this this morning. Very important. Church is a place, we've seen this morning, made up of people that follow Christ and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Church is a place where you're taught to respect order and authority so your life can be blessed. Church is a place where you practice the sacrament of communion. But fourthly, church is a place where you get right with God. And and if necessary, you repent so you don't come under the discipline of that God. Because those whom the Lord loves, he will discipline. He will spank you. I know it. I've been spanked. And if I get into a stage of disobedience, one of the purposes of church is get me back into his presence, hear his word again, let God's word judge the thoughts and intents of my heart, and get it right. And that's why church is important, by the way. It recalibrates you. And it gets you back into his presence. And it gets you under the teaching of the authority of God's word where you can say, I'm not right in there and I need to get right. The Bible's very clear. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why the book of Hebrews says this book right here, as we come under its teaching and we submit it to its authority, it says this word right here is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? It's able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. It goes to the very joints and marrow of our soul and can even judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. You know what I call it? I call it when you get in church and you sit on the teaching of God's word and you're open to it, it'll do spiritual surgery, It'll cut out the stuff that needs to get cut out so you can get healed and whole and well in that area instead of sick in that area. It's hmm. so almost two weeks ago. No, no, I'm sorry. Four, week, four and a half weeks ago. It's here on a Wednesday night. And I was sitting under the teaching of Pastor Mike and Nehemiah on Wednesday night. 
He's been doing a great job, by the way, in Nehemiah. You're missing out if you're not coming out Wednesday nights. Great teaching. So I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting right back here. And as I'm sitting there, I started having flip-flops in my stomach. I'm going, am I getting convicted on this or what? And I'm going, no, I just had some bad pizza or something. And it wasn't bad pizza, it was a gallstone. And that gallstone got stuck in there and started doing flip-flops. And then I went home, and, and as I went home, it got worse. And then it got like someone was stabbing me in my solar plexus right here. I felt literally like someone was stabbing me. I said, Heidi, we need to go somewhere. And get, something's going on. So she took me to the emergency room like at 11 o'clock at night and then Wednesday night. I get in the emergency room and it's getting worse. To the point that I couldn't sit in the emergency room without doing laps because I couldn't sit there because it was just two hours of really bad pain. Bad pain. And then, then they, they thought I was having a heart attack for a second. I'm going, oh, wow. And so they EKG'd me, didn't have a heart issue. They said, you got a gallstone stuck and you need to go to the emergency room and we need to send you right now. Because this is serious, what's going on, the trauma that's going on in your stomach. And so they said, we're going to put you in an ambulance, we're going to take you from the emergency room, and we're going to go take you to Lexington Hospital. And then my mind started, the Dutch mind started thinking, ambulance, about a thousand bucks. <laughs> Heidi, get me in the Prius, quick. <laughs> and so <laughs> I disobeyed the doctor's orders. I said, well, we got a Prius, it gets good gas, but we're on the way. <laughs> and so she took me real quick down the road, 20, 15 minutes to the Alexander Hospital. I get there, and I get there, and, and it's just getting worse. And then they gave me some morphine, and it still was bad. And they gave me some more morphine. And fortunately, what the morphine did was it, it relaxed my body to the point that the stone passed. But the next day after a scan, they said I had uh, pancreatitis because of the trauma of that stuff. And so we got to get that gallbladder out of there. <clears throat> and so Friday morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, the surgeon comes in, about to roll me into surgery, and the surgeon comes in, introduces himself to me and stuff, and right before he's about to cut me open, he goes, um, and what do you do? And I said, well, I'm the pastor at Calvary Chapel in Lexington. He goes, oh, okay. I said, what, do you know me? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, we were, we were my, my nine-year-old and my wife and my parents were all at your Easter sunrise service last Easter. And I go, I got the right guy. And this guy's going to cut me over. I got the right guy. And he said, and then I said, are we going to come back this Easter? Are we doing it again? He goes, yeah, I'm there. And then he put me under and so grateful for having a, a believer like that who's operating on me. I'm so grateful because he told me after the operation, he said, you will never have gallstones again because you don't got a gallbladder anymore. <laughs> and you're not going to have that pain ever again. And it's fixed. And the surgery, and it was tough. The surgery was tough because I was, and they took it through my belly button, and there was pain there, and I still deal a little bit with recovery four weeks later, but it, it's just about done, and I'm healed, and I'll never have those stones again. And I'm grateful for that surgeon. I'm grateful for the surgery. I'm grateful for the surgery. Even though it's painful in, in recovery and stuff, I'm grateful I had the surgery because it's fixed. My point, when we come to church, God fixes us. God uses his word, living and active, as we submit to it, and as we have open ears to hear it, and we learn from it, and we come under the authority of God's word, he will fix you. He will heal you. He will, he will, he will bless not only your personal life, he'll bless your family and fix things that need to be fixed in your family, your marriage, your parenting. It'll change. 
as you get into God's word and you listen to the wisdom that's in this word and it becomes living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, does the spiritual surgery, it teaches you, rebukes you, corrects you, trains you in righteousness, and then you get fixed. And why is church important? Church is important because it's a place, as we've seen this morning, it's a place where you get around other people that are following Christ and you follow them as they follow Christ. Church is important because it's a place where you learn about authority, ultimately God's authority, but also authority structure God's put in place. And you come under those authority structures and you get blessed. Church is important also, we've seen this morning, it's a place where you practice this holy sacrament of communion on a regular basis. And you go back and remember the cross and you look forward to the return of Christ and then you also examine yourself and get things right. Church is important because it's a place where you come under the teaching of God's word. Then God's word can be living and active and get things right in your life. So if there's things you need to repent of, you get repentance. And the kindness of God will lead to repentance, but repentance will come. And some of you after church sometimes say, Pastor John, you were stepping on my toes this morning. I go, I, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. It's just the word of God. And if you're convicted by it, it means there's some things that God's working on. And he's doing some spiritual surgery and he's helping you. And he's bringing some change and repentance. And you know what? I don't say this, but I think in my heart, hey, and if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> if there's some changes that need to be made, make those changes. Repent. Get it right. We're not supposed to come to church and just have all, ooh, and, and just warm feeling things going on all the time. We're here to get changed and be more like Christ. And if that takes some conviction, bring it on, Lord. Because we want to have great marriages. We want to be godly people. We want to be people who are following hard after Christ so we could say with legitimacy and integrity, follow me as I follow Christ. We want to be the real deal here at Calvary Chapel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning, God. Thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you that your word is, is inspired by you. It's God-breathed. And it's, it's, it has the ability to do spiritual surgery in our lives and make us those people that we're called to be. And Father, I pray that we would be people that love your church as you love your church. Help us to be people that have the right ecclesiology, the right understanding of church, that church is a place where we have a whole bunch of people that love Jesus, that are following Jesus, and we could follow them as they follow Christ. And we could be that example to others too, Lord. Help us to have the right understanding of church too, that church is a place where we learn about authority and structure and have blessed lives because we come under that authority and structure that you've ordained, God. Ultimately, your authority as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us to have the right understanding of church too. This is a place where we, we have worship and we have holy sacraments like communion where we can remember and we can look forward and we can look within and we could, we could be under that, that blessing of celebrating our life in you, God. And Father, we thank you too that church is a place where we could study your word and your word could be living and active in our lives and could be fixing those things that need to be fixed and could be changing us in those areas where we need to be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness, Lord. Help us to be open to that, Lord. Help us to be people that have ears to hear what you want to speak in each one of our lives, Lord. God, we're, we're not finished. We have so much more that you have to do in our lives. And we could be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry us to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, but we're, we're just Christians under construction. So, Lord, help us to be open to that work that you want to do, that we are your workmanship.
created for good works, which you have prepared before and that we should walk in them. Help us to walk in them, Lord. And help us to be open to all that you want to do in our lives. You want to make something beautiful out of every single life in this room. You want us to all be followers of Christ that are being changed from glory to glory on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis to be in your image, God. I pray for the marriages in this room too, Lord. Father, help us not to go with the currents of this world. We're not to be conformed to this world. We'll be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And help us to have godly marriages, Lord. Marriages that reflect your love, your respect, your honor, your glory, God. I pray that for the men in this room that are husbands, help us to be one women men. If we're married, help us to have the only, <clears throat> only eyes for any woman as our wives. Help us to stay committed to that, Lord. And I pray for the wives in this room. Help them to be one men women. I pray, too, that for the wives in this room, that they would show respect towards their husbands and husbands, that they would love their wives as Christ loved the church. Bless every marriage and every family in this room as they honor the structure you set up, Lord. Pour your love and your blessing into the families here, Lord, into the marriages here. And Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for church. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name.